sorry. I always forget that. The herd release. If you're four years old, the second grade, uh, now is the time to be released. You are being released to uh, Tara and Rebecca, as I see them waving back there. So four years old, the second grade, released. If y'all wouldn't mind standing for the word of the Lord, that'd be awesome. We are in uh, 1 Peter 1, um, 22 through 25. Um, It's on 1014. Um, You can also look on your phones or whatever that you have. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm just going to pray with Jonathan as he gets ready to give us the message this morning. And just if you would, again, join me in in prayer. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this man of God, that you have worked in him in such a way to bring him here, to have him standing in front of us this morning to teach and preach your word, first and foremost to himself and then to us. But Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see that Um, As he brings forth and boldly proclaims the truth of your scriptures, that we would be um, moved by it, that our hearts would be transformed and our lives would be um, different. And Lord, we just thank you and we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Man, it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, It's a pleasure. Keep your finger there in uh, 1 Peter. We're going to look at verses 22 through 25. Um, I don't know what it looks like for you when it comes to, to desserts, but, um, in general, uh, this is a blanket statement that could just, that will, will forever be true, um, for myself is I, I, I'm a lover of cookies. Um, when it comes to dessert, cake, not so much. I don't know why. No beef against cake. Cake's never done anything against me. Um, I just, I just don't love, just don't love cake. Um, but I, I really, really like cookies. Um, I'm especially a lover of the Oreo cookie. Um, Oreo, two chocolate wafers, cream filling, glass of milk. It's it's really it's really heaven when you when you think about it. Just give you guys time maybe to to, to think about it here. Now the real stroke of genius is when someone came along and said, not only is two chocolate wafers and one layer of cream filling good, the real stroke of genius was the double stuff Oreo. Um, a bro- sometimes a brother needs two layers of filling inside the, the cream or inside the chocolate chocolate wafers, right? Um, so, so really, and so this is great, right? So like what the Oreo is, it's a cookie. That's, I mean, it's basically like a sandwich, and guys like sandwiches anyway. So, I mean, it's like you're just combining all of the, like, the best of both worlds. Because like, what do you have, right? You've got um, a sandwich, bread, bread, and then you've got the, all the stuff in the middle. I mean, that's what an Oreo is. It's chocolate wafer, chocolate wafer, all this stuff in the middle, and it just only gets better when you just add more, and that's just the beauty of um, the, double, the double stuff Oreo. Um, when we turn our attention to our verses here today in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, 
What we're really going to see is Peter turning our attention to the second layer of cream filling, if you will. Um, Starting all the way back in verse 1 and working all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, is really one concise argument that Peter's arguing for. And it's really like an Oreo cookie. Um, When you look at verses 1 through 12, you've got this one chocolate wafer. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2, and there's another chocolate wafer. There's there's these two big ideas where, where Peter's basically going to say, listen, this is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And he, he couches these two bookends, these two wafers, so to speak, and basically says, now everything in the middle, this is where the good stuff is. And so, he, so we took two weeks to look at that first layer of cream filling. It was verses 13 through 21 where, where Peter said, hey, here's the wafer. Here's what God has done for you in, in Jesus Christ. There's verses 1 through 12. Now let me unpack for you on an individual level the implications of the gospel for you you and your life. And we took two weeks to look at that. That was verses 13 through, through 21. Now, if you, you're looking in your Bible, you'll notice there's no, big, there's no big shift when you shift from verse 21 to 22. Um, there's, no, there's no black and bold heading. There's no big number two. It's not a new, new chapter division, but there is a shift in thought. And And Peter's really going from that first layer of cream filling to that second layer. He's moving from, hey, this is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, and this is the implications of what he has done for you on the individual level. But for this week and next week, we're going to see him shift in his mind's eye to this second layer of cream filling what the gospel means for you, the implications of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ at the community level. So because God has saved you, and then you come to church and interact with somebody whom God has saved, and then you two interact with somebody else whom God has saved, and then we have this band of believers who congregate together as members all proclaiming, all confessing this one thing, Jesus Christ has saved me, Peter's now going to broaden the lens, span out a little bit, and show us what the gospel implications are for the community of believers. For Peter, the gospel informs the new people of God how to live in community. A person's relationship with God is never just merely an individual matter. The Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. There's going to be one overarching command that's going to come to us from these four verses that we're going to look at today. And the only way to be able to fulfill the command of love one another can only be fulfilled within community. The Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. To be foreknown by God the Father, set apart by the Spirit, and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ necessarily means coming into relationship with others who have experienced the exact same thing. 
So from these verses this morning, we're going to see Peter press this main idea right into our laps, that believers are to love one another because they have been born again, because you are a recipient of the gospel, because you have been converted, because you have obeyed the demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter says the implication is you are to in turn pour outward toward others the love that you have received from our triune God. So if you look at your copy of scripture in verse 22, in that latter part of verse 22, you'll see this big idea. These believers of Asia Minor are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then what he's going to do is really just go and here are two two pillars that support this truth. Here are two ways that ground my ability to be able to say this command. You can love one another earnestly from pure heart. Why? One, because you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And two, because you have been born again through the living word of God. We're going to see Peter argue this. Your conversion, your being born again according to the great mercy of God the Father is the grounds for you to go forth and love other believers who have experienced the exact same thing. So look in your copy of Scripture, verse, verse 22. You'll see this idea in that latter part of verse 22. Peter says this, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. To love one another earnestly from a pure heart is the main command of this text in these four verses. A Christian community is to be characterized by an earnest and pure love for one another. Loving one another is the purpose of conversion, Peter is arguing. Peter calls these believers to love, but, but notice the love Peter has in view. It's not some sort of warm, fuzzy love. It's not the kind of, the kind of love like I have for, for pizza and donuts and Oreo cookies. It's not the kind of love that I even have for my children or, or, or my wife. There's something great or something grand. It's not just a warm cup of coffee with, with, with a friend. It's, those, those are things that we can love, but there's something there that's very nuanced in the way that Peter's talking about love here. When he says you are to love one another, love for Peter is defined by a relationship that is based on God's attribute of love. Our notion of love is not to be defined by the world, but our notion of love is to find its definition in the very nature of God himself. He's he's going to really unpack this idea when we turn to those phrases of those two grounds for why he can say that. What he's going to say is, listen, the love of God, the Trinitarian love that, that flows between the Father, Son, and Spirit, this has been poured out into you. You have experienced the love of God. You have experienced the steadfast love of the great I am. And just as you have experienced this, received this, know this, and grasp this, you are to turn image outward to fellow believers the very true nature of the love of God that has come to you. This is his definition of love. You know you are loving the way Peter is talking about loving when your love brings you into relationship in a way that is earnest and from a pure heart toward other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. 
Notice he calls them to love, but he calls them to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. They are to love earnestly. They're to love intently. They're to love, to love fervently. Their love is not to be mingled with impure motives. Their love is not to be mingled with polluted motives. It's to be from a, from a pure heart. We are not called to love one another as an angle to get something out of someone. So, so what he isn't saying is just sort of, sort of just buckle under yourself. Hey, man, just get over yourself. I don't care about the attitude of your heart. Just make sure you guys have actions to where if somebody on the outside was just looking in on the exchanges between Christian upon Christian, they would go, man, yeah, yeah, those guys are probably loving each other. But if you were to peel back your skin and get to the very attitude of your heart, the attitude of your heart would be, I'm not actually loving this guy from a heart attitude of love. I'm loving this guy just because Peter's saying to love somebody. Man, I'll, I'll, I'll do a good deed toward this guy, but my heart isn't aligning with my actions. Or I'm going to love this person so I can somehow grab this action of love, stick it in my pocket, and use it as an angle, use it as leverage for later on to, to extract something from this person later. And Peter's going, no, 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 no. That, that's, not, that's, that's not loving from a pure heart. That's loving from a polluted heart. We're not called to love one another as an angle to get something out of someone. To perform an act of love with the intention of using it as, as leverage is unacceptable. See, Peter then turns and anchors the call to love in their conversion, he says, if you want to understand what love looks like, if you want to understand what it looks like to love earnestly and love with a pure heart, look at the love that was received, that you have received. Look at the love that was given, given to you. See, so this command, this imperative, isn't just floating in oblivion. Love one another earnestly with a pure heart. There's really two pillars that are supporting this, this command. So when this command comes floating down, it's just not hovering. It comes and it rests on these two main ideas that Peter's going to, to put forward. They're not to love just for love's sake. This isn't love to somehow earn God's love. No, this is a command. You are to love because you have first been loved. So first notice what Peter says is the first grounds for loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. Scan your eyes all the way back to the beginning of verse 22 there in your copy of Scripture. First, Peter's going to say this, that they are to love one another because they have purified their souls by their obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. See, their souls once were tainted with the stain of sin, but now their souls have been purified. Their souls have been made holy. So when Peter comes to them and says, you have purified your souls, it is Peter's way of speaking about conversion. The means of their purification was by their obedience to the truth. So it wasn't just merely this. Hey, you have done some act to purify your souls. And somehow you've done something that's put God in debt to you. And so God, out of obligation, did something to make you holy. He's saying, no, it's not that. There's something more. Yes, you've purified your souls, but you purified your souls by what? By your obedience to the truth. See, the truth that Peter referenced here in this verse is the truth of the gospel. Often the New Testament will refer to the gospel in shorthand by simply calling it the truth. 
An example of this can be found elsewhere. You can find it in Ephesians 1.13. You can find it in James 1.18. Colossians 1 does something very similar to this, where Paul says, You have a hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So he's saying these are synonymous terms. When I talk about the truth, I'm talking about the gospel. And we're going to see later that when he says the same thing, I'm going to, when he's talking about the word, he's talking about the gospel. These are synonymous, interchangeable words for guys like Peter and for guys like, like Paul. The word of the truth is the gospel. The gospel is the word of the truth. So inherently, in the truth of the gospel is a call to obey it. A call to be obedience. Conversion always involves obedience to the gospel. Because, I mean, look what Peter's saying in verse 22. He doesn't say this. You have purified your souls by your knowledge of the gospel. It's, it's not just merely knowledge about the gospel that saves us. He doesn't say this. Having purified your souls by your understanding of the gospel. There are many people who have a knowledge of the gospel who even understand the gospel. You could ask them questions about the gospel. They will give you right biblical answers, but just knowledge and understanding is not enough. Peter says conversion comes, purification of your soul comes, salvation of your soul comes when you obey the demands of the gospel to repent of your sins, acknowledging that you need a Savior to make you right to be that one mediator between God and man and you place your faith in Jesus Christ saying, I have no other hope of having a right relationship with the Father unless Jesus Christ steps in and purifies my soul. Obedience to the gospel. Conversion always involves obedience. It's the call to lay down self-love, to lay down conceit, to lay down pride, to stop striving to live outside the authority of God and to submit to the rule and reign of King Jesus over every aspect of our lives. To be obedient to the truth of the gospel is the call to obey the demands of the gospel. But notice that their obedience to the truth of the gospel calls them to live outwardly toward others. So again, Peter's just piling phrase upon phrase as he's building up this first pillar. Love one another. Well, 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 when was I enabled to love one another? When, when, at what point in time in history was I made capable of loving one another? And Peter says this, well, when, you're, when your souls are purified by your obedience to the truth, and then, then the question comes along, well, is this just for me? When, I, when God enabled me, granted me the faith to be able to respond in obedience to the gospel, thereby, thereby purifying my souls? Is this just something I'm to embrace, something I'm just to hold on to? And Peter says, no, 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 no. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, who is this for? It's for a sincere brotherly love. It's for you so you can go in turn and love the brothers, the sisters in Christ like you have been loved by the Father. Their obedience to the truth of the gospel calls them to live outwardly toward others. Their conversion leads them to a sincere brotherly love. The purpose of their conversion 
is a genuine love for fellow believers. Brotherly love is something that can truly be grasped and attained only when the gospel purifies a soul. Because the believers of Asia Minor obeyed the truth of the gospel, they were now freed from the need of self-love. See, sin warps our ability to love because it curves love inward. When you go and talk to anyone who's a non-believer, or if even you can remember back in your mind's eye to when you were not a believer, you were able to love. But it was love curved and bent in upon yourself. It was self-love. You loved yourself. You cared for yourself. It came at the expense of others at most times because it was self-promotion, self-love. It was, it was me making much of me so that me could go forward proclaiming the glory of me. Self-love was all about, all about you. See, sin warps our ability to love because it curbs love inward. But the gospel comes and redirects the intention of love by freeing us from having to somehow find our identity in promotion of self. And what it does is it comes and redirects the intentions of love by curbing love outward toward others instead of curbing love inward toward ourself. See, the good news of Jesus Christ enables us to walk in love toward fellow believers. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Pillar number one. Here's, the, here's one part of the ground for Peter saying this. Because you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That was the first pillar that supports that, that command. The second pillar that supports that command is found starting in verse 23. Look at your, your copy of Scripture there. Peter says they are to love one another because they, what? They have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. See, God is their father. God is their father. That's a theme that Peter's been cranking on from the beginning. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, blessed be the God and Father. You have been born again according to the great mercy of the Father. We are to be obedient children to the Father. If you call on Him as Father, since you've been born again, is this idea jumping all the way back to verse 3. And Peter again is just beating this drum, this idea, putting this illustration before these believers in Asia Minor that they are the spiritual children who have been begotten from God the Father. God is their Father, and they were begotten unto new life through him. Christians have been begotten by the seed of God's word. The emphasis in this this verse here is on God as the one who granted them new life. God begetting his children by the seed of the word is like a father begetting a child by his seed. Notice how Peter describes this this life-giving seed in verse 23. It is not It's not perishable, but this living and abiding seed, this life-giving seed from God is imperishable. See, the human seed of a father is perishable, and even if it produces children, they too will eventually perish. But the seed God uses to beget his children is imperishable. It is undecaying. It is incorruptible. 
The seed that Peter is talking about is the word of God. He makes that connection there for us in verse 23. When you see that phrase, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, what he's saying is these two phrases are synonymous. When I'm talking about the seed that's imperishable, I'm talking about the word of God. When I'm talking about the living and abiding word of God, what I'm doing is I am talking about this imperishable seed. The seed that Peter is talking about is the word of God. And this turn of phrase, the word of God, is another of Peter's ways of just simply talking about the gospel. We referenced this a while ago, Colossians chapter 1. Paul does this. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And so you have Peter taking this idea of the truth back in verse 22. And he's using it synonymously for the gospel. You have Peter using this idea of the word, using it synonymously for the gospel, just like Paul did in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. But he's not satisfied with that. He, he goes on a little bit further. He says, not only is this word of God, this seed, imperishable, but let me tell you something, it's living. It's abiding. God's word is living, and it brings life where there once was just spiritual death. God's word is abiding. It, it remains when all else fails. God's word is life-giving because nothing can outlive God's word. Nothing can destroy God's word. No amount of time will cause rust or decay to come and crumble and wear down God's word. The source of our salvation is rooted in the imperishable seed of God's word which generates eternal life. I mean, now this is good news because what Peter's saying this, you have been born again. We understand that according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. But now Peter comes and he unpacks that a little bit further and says, yes, God, according to his mercy, has caused you to be born again, but it came through the agency of the word of God coming to you. And just so you know, your salvation is secure because when the seed of God's word, which is imperishable, living, abiding, remaining forever, means that the fruit that this seed yields is itself imperishable, living, abiding, and remaining. This means your salvation can be described in the same terms which Peter uses for God's word because the seed of God's word yields the fruit of eternal life in a believer's soul. And when that fruit yields eternal life in the believer's soul, we can step back and go, thank you, God. Praise be to Jesus Christ that I don't have to work to keep my salvation. Salvation. My salvation is rooted in Jesus Christ through that imperishable, living, abiding, remaining forever word. That's good news. That's assurance for the soul. And thinking upon the living and abiding word of God takes Peter to, to jump back into the Old Testament. Look at your copy of Scripture there, verses 24 and 25. I mean, he just unpacks this idea of the imperishable seed, this idea of the word of God that's living and abiding in him. It takes him to that place. Man, man, I remember there's this this place in Isaiah chapter 40 that, that that really talks about this and unpacks it, helps us understand it. And it's like he turns back there saying, let me give you an illustration of this idea of the imperishable nature of the word. He says this. 
Quoting Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 6 and 8. All flesh is like grass. All its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Oh, and by the way, this word that remains forever is the good news that was preached to you. See, flesh can be compared to grass, and glory can be compared to a flower. Just as grass withers, so too will flesh wither. Just as a flower will fall, so too will the glory of flesh fall. See, it's interesting here because he's really going back and he's picking back up on the seed idea, right? Because what he's saying is when a, when a human daddy gives forth his seed, he, he, he brings about something. He brings about flesh. And there's a glory to flesh. There's something beautiful about God's crowning creation, the humanity that he created as the pinnacle of all creation. But you have to, you have to know something. This flesh is going to wither and the glory of, of humanity will fall. But, but, but just as you can walk out onto a beautiful field and see the grass and recognize that that, that seed was planted in there and that seed gave forth life and that, that life is this grass that I'm looking at. I mean, that, that's beautiful, but that grass will wither. That seed that gave forth that beauty, it, it will die in the Maybe there, you turn your eye to the side and you see a field full of just of flowers, beautiful, ornate, colorful, exotic flowers. And you're looking at that going, man, that's incredible. There's, there's something glorious about seeing this. And you recognize that somebody threw a seed into the soil and that, that seed gave life to these flowers that you're looking at. But you look at that and you have to re- recognize and realize, man, as beautiful as that flower is, that flower is going to wither, that flower is going to die, that flower is going to fall. The seed that was sown to give birth to the, to the grass and to the flower is perishable. The beauty and grandeur of a flowery field and even the glory of man are temporary expressions. Their beauty fades, their grandeur perishes. But it is not so with God's life-giving message. Man, it is not so with God's life-giving message. His living and abiding word, his imperishable seed, these things will remain forever. God's life-giving message was preached to the believers in Asia Minor and its living and abiding qualities are proved by the fact that these once sinners have been born again to new life. Ultimately, when you step back and you look at verses 22 through, through 25, what you see is Peter pressing home this idea. The new birth of these believers was one phenomenal, eternal infinite act of love shown toward them from God. They were the very recipients of God's steadfast love. And when they rightly understood this act of steadfast love poured out to them, they in turn were to pour out toward others what had been poured in to them. See, believers are to love one another because they've been born again. The Apostle John grabs this exact same idea, and you can see him. I mean, he takes a whole, a whole letter to unpack it. You're just going to read First John. And he's, he's twisting and turning this gem, this jewel of this idea over and over again, and he spins out implications 
of this truth, just as Peter's doing. There comes a point in time in 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 11, the Apostle John, a contemporary of Peter, says this, Beloved, let us love one another. Sounds really familiar. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. John says, let us love one another. Why, John? Well, it's really simple. Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So you get that born again language. See, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. John says this, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing substitute for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. And then he sums up this idea with this one phrase, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, this is the New Testament idea. That your conversion isn't just meant for you. The purpose of your conversion is so that the gospel would come and rearrange your idea of love and you wouldn't turn love in upon yourself, just loving yourself, promoting yourself, caring for yourself, but so that the gospel would come in and change the dynamics of how you define love, know love, and understand love, recognizing that God poured out love to us and we in turn pour out love toward others. See, the reality of new birth is to work itself out in our love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And from the pages of Scripture, from the book of 1 John, all the way to this book, 1 Peter, we see the Scriptures calling us to live out our conversion to Christ, which is an act of love extended to you by turning and extending this love in community. I think there is a grand implication here when you see that command in verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It is impossible for you to love one another and live your life in isolation. In order for us to obey this command to love one another, it necessitates Christian community. Love, working itself out in community, is something that is perfectly and eternally displayed within the members of the Trinity. So, so see, like, you have to understand this. When Peter comes to this and says, okay, a right implication for the community of people who have been born again by God through the living and abiding word is this, is that I will interact with you by loving on you, and you will love on me, and then we'll turn and love on you, and then you love on this person, this person loves on this way. The definition of love being, I'm going to seek to live my life, my thoughts, my words, and my actions, imaging God by his grace, just the way that God has poured out his grace into my life. But what Peter was saying here wasn't something new or novel that just sort of creeped up out of nowhere. This idea of love and loving one another, necessitating community, stems all the way back to the Trinity. Love working itself out in community 
is something that is perfectly and eternally displayed within the members of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the epitome of what love looks like lived out in community. And the beauty of this love, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, is that this love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. See, we come to a knowledge of this love through the converting power of God's word, but we come to a more full experience of this love as we experience it in the community of believers. The gospel on the individual level becomes the soil that springs forth a body of believers who image love to a world through Christian community. You and I have experienced gospel love. For those of us who make the confession that Jesus Christ is my Lord, he is my mediator. He stands in between God and me, mediating, making my beef against God go away, making God's beef against me. He absorbs it. He conforms it. He turns it into a beautiful flower of salvation. You and I have experienced gospel love. And where a community of believers gather, the expected norm is an atmosphere of earnest and pure love for one another. And where this earnest and pure love lacks in a church, it is a sign that the gospel has not taken hold as a way of life. Yes, the gospel is for salvation, but the gospel is also more than salvation. The gospel is for life. We don't grasp onto the gospel on that day of our conversion and go, glad I got that one out of the way. All right, Paul, what else do you need me to do? We start flipping through the Bible like we build some big checklist. Like as in the gospel is just the first thing you do that gets you in the doors of Christianity and then you just boot it out the door going, well, it got me in. Now I guess I don't need it, right? It's just sort of a one-shot deal. One trick pony, that gospel is. And Paul comes along, and, and Peter comes along, and John comes along, and James comes along, and the, and the whole totality of, of the scriptures come along and say, no, the, the gospel is the, the epitome of all things. The gospel brings us into right relationship with the Father, and the gospel is the thing we bank on. The good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners is the thing that we grasp onto. It is for life. And this this idea of the gospel being the fuel that helps us to understand what it looks like to love one another is true for all areas of life, even beyond the relationships of brothers and sisters here at Delta. Because you've been born again, we are to love one another. This is a principle that's true for the husband and wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, the roommate relationship, the workplace relationship, etc., etc., Where there are areas of your life that you proclaim gospel knowledge, yet this gospel knowledge does not lead you to love, there's a huge disconnect. I think that's about as simple as Peter's point as he's driving home. If you go about waving the banner of the gospel, the gospel has been applied to me by the Holy Spirit, then you step back. Scan the panorama of your life and go, sweet mercy, that one area of my life is void of anything that looks like love. Peter would step in and go, there's a disconnect there, my man. Because you're proclaiming one thing and you're living, living its opposite. Now, the beauty of all of this is that I've experienced what it's like to love one another in this place among you fellow believers. You know, I don't, I don't hold up deltas as the pinnacle of all things perfect. 
Lord knows we've all got our areas and we're at different levels of sanctification. There's a lot that Delta's doing right. Admittedly, we're not perfect. But by God's grace, I have no hitch in my soul in saying that Delta is a place where the gospel is gripping and has gripped our souls and has produced an earnest and pure love for one another. I mean, I can stand before you and give the testament. I've experienced that just even in my year being here. To come into this place and to see how you guys love one another. How there's a desire to be in community with another. To talk and to, to share. To press into, to mold. To speak truth in love, loving one another. This, this, is, a place, this, is, a, this is a place where I think Delta is doing very good. And it doesn't mean we stop, but no, this, this encouragement is meant to spur us further on toward, toward love and, and good deeds. This, this idea that we are seeing this, loving one another earnestly from a pure heart, being lived out well in our midst, is meant to go, man, yes, thank you, God, that we walk with people who love the gospel and so don't just merely see the gospel as something for, for salvation, but they see the gospel for life. So when I seek to step into community with you, I know that you're going to pour gospel truth back into me. And my desire is to step in with you and pour gospel truth and gospel love back into you. And th- my testimony of experiencing this isn't just my testimony. All you need to do is just start asking people and talking to people, why did you come to Delta Church, then why in the world did you stick around? Like, what caused you to, to want to desire to anchor your Christian life in this body of believers? And I've heard it too many times to think it's a fluke, but the most common response sounds an awful lot like Peter's commands. We came here and we saw, experienced, knew, felt, Christians loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. People knew this, saw this, were on the receiving end of what it's like to love one another, and it drew them in. See, admittedly, it's nothing, it's nothing special among us. Rather, it's a move of the Spirit, the Spirit of God working the gospel out in all areas of our lives. See, a church that is built and rooted in the gospel will draw in the saints while it simultaneously draws in those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. See, when a non-believer sees and knows for the first time and experiences that unique love of God in what, in such a way that true love is meant to be experienced, that softens the heart and it shows people a picture of the gospel. For many reasons, for many reasons, but this being one of the bigger ones, this past year has just truly been a pure joy. This is our one-year anniversary for, for my family, for being the pastor here at Delta. It was, we're actually just one day short. It was October 6th of 2013. It's October 5th. We'll, we'll call it a year. Grant some grace, all right? Don't be hating. Um, I mean, I just don't know, I'm, oddly enough, and you probably think I'm lying to you, but I feel like I'm lacking in words. Um, in being able to describe to you the intense joy that this past year has been. 
and being able to walk with you guys and to learn with you guys, to be challenged, to be challenged with you. And one of the big reasons is because this was a place where loving one another earnestly from a pure heart comes naturally because it's a people who, we're a people who love the gospel. The experience of this idea from Peter, you have to know, is oddly enough very rare amongst Christian, Christian communities. We experience something like this in Louisville, and one of our fears that Tara and I were talking about is like, what are we stepping into? You know, coming out of seminary, you hear horror stories all the time about people leaving this, the community of like-minded individuals when you're just surrounded in that unique, admittedly very short season of life where you're in your seminary, and most guys go off and they come back with these awful like war and horror stories about churches that don't understand this. And, like, and I, I can say coming here that that is not even a category on the radar for us. We came here and we were enfolded into this body of believers. We, we came here and we've experienced you guys, how you've loved one another, and then how you just basically opened up an arm and you, you drew us, drew me, drew, drew in my family. See, to come to a place like Delta in my first pastorate has just blown my mind. To come to a church that lives out the gospel and desires to grow in this area encourages my heart more than you could ever know. I mean, being a pastor, I don't know if this is a newsflash for you, but being a pastor isn't the easiest task in the world. It comes with heartaches. It comes with nights of tears. It comes with bended knee. It comes with praying. It comes with you sometimes wanting to chokehold people. comes if you want to grab by the lapels and knock the knuckles on the, on the head. I mean, sometimes there's, there's the good and bad being, being a pastor. But coming here and, and experiencing the love that you guys have for, for each other, it, it only spurs and encourages my heart as I pray for you, as I pray for the elders, and as I pray for our church and its witness in this city. See, I agree with Paul when he wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, this at the end of this, this grand, grand prayer that he, he just unpacks in, in chapter 3, but he, he brings it to this little dox, doxological statement. He says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And it spurs him on to go, good night. God be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever and amen. And I stand here and I agree with Apostle Paul. I mean, I look at him and go, brother, you nailed it on the head. Being enfolded into this body of believers, God has answered this prayer of being able to be folded in, knitting our hearts together in love more abundantly than I could have ever have asked or thought. I mean, I just don't know how else to say this, but I, I love you. As your pastor, I do. To be able to walk with you and to pray for you, to help disciple you, to open up the scriptures and explain them to you, God has made my soul for this. And to be able to come into this place has been the most immense, joyful year of my 33 years here on earth. Finally being able to fulfill the call that God, God has placed on my life. And to be able to do this with you in this place has been nothing but pure, unadulterated joy. 
God has knit my heart to yours, and for this I'm eternally thankful. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for the love that you first poured out to us. And God, by your grace and by your leading, Spirit, by you walking with us, I pray that you would help us to continue to do this good, good work one to another, but that you would also continue to help us grow in this. See, the call to love one another, Father, it, it is not merely just individualistic. It's not even just merely for the people sitting in these four, four walls, but it is meant for us to go and live out the love of Jesus Christ within our city so the city will in turn see and know the steadfast, unbounding, free grace of God. God, help us to turn and to live out in every atmosphere of our life what is true of us vertically, that we have tasted and seen that God is good and his love has been poured out into our hearts. God, do this for your namesake and glory. Amen.